นโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังนมังสังขังนมัสสะWhen I read this question, I was somewhat surprised at what appeared to me to be an assumption that such a profoundly important matter, like who is suffering and who lets go of suffering, and who understands, these are really important questions. And however, if I read the tone of the question correctly. There seems to be an assumption that, by thinking about this, the questioner is going to find an answer, and that's really something that needs to be looked at very carefully. Thinking has its place, absolutely. The Buddha encourages to cultivate right thinking and to use thinking. However, we use thinking so as to see beyond thinking, and it's important that we understand that. We train our thoughts so as our attention goes in a certain direction, like contemplating, intentionally contemplating the Four Noble Truths, intentionally contemplating Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta. We use thinking. However, it's only useful up to a certain point. But it absolutely has its place, so we're not disparaging thinking. However, there's something that seems to have happened in humanity over the last, however many decades or centuries, whereby human beings now, generally speaking, seem to be identified as their thinking mind, and we know this because we. Troubled by our thoughts, we take it intensely personally. We have bad thoughts or compulsive thoughts, and we take it all thoroughly personally. Whereas it might be better if we were making the effort to see thinking as a symptom of who we are, or an aspect of who we are, like the smoke rather than the fire. To assume that. We're going to be able to answer, or even really address these profoundly important questions, like who is suffering, who lets go of suffering, 
by merely thinking about it. To me, the image that comes to mind is like looking in the mirror and if the image in the mirror wants to change how it looks, the image doesn't have that ability. The face has that ability. We want to change how the image in the mirror looks. We stop frowning and start smiling and, and that changes how the image looks. But the image in the mirror doesn't have the authority, doesn't have the agency. The image in the mirror doesn't have the agency. It can't change how it looks. Similarly, merely by following thinking about such profoundly important questions, we shouldn't make the mistake of assuming that that's going to be enough. We need to be willing to inquire beyond thinking. We train thinking, we learn about the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, like we're chanting this evening in the, the Buddha's first discourse, the Tamachaka Pawatana Sutta, the discourse and the turning of the wheel of Dhamma. And, and we contemplate, we use thinking. However, this is so as to discipline, so as to train attention and to go in a certain direction, so as to inquire accurately, to pay attention accurately. Now, if we can get that message, if we can appreciate that, and are willing to begin to inquire beyond thought, beyond thinking, it takes faith. It takes daring. And particularly if we're so intensely, as I suggest we all are, identified as our thinking mind, we really feel like it's me. Mm -hmm. And so how do we learn to inquire beyond that which we feel is me? Well, as I said, it takes, it takes faith, it takes trust. Or in Pali, is sadha. And that's one reason why we have the teaching on the five spiritual faculties these five spiritual faculties of faith, energy, mindfulness, collectedness, discernment, sattva, virya, sati, samadhi, panya, these five spiritual faculties, these are what we want to be developing, not merely thinking. If we want to answer these really important questions, if we want to develop in the spiritual life, this is what we need to be working on, these five spiritual faculties. And the first being Faith. If we don't have faith, we don't have trust, we don't have confidence, for instance, that freedom from suffering is possible, then we're not going to get motivated. We're not going to make the effort to inhibit our addiction to the thinking mind, our identification as the thinking mind. But because if we do have faith, then we sit in meditation and we use the meditation object, whatever it is, the mindfulness of breathing or listening to the sound of silence and and the temptation to go back to thinking, fantasizing, imagining, speculating, remembering. We have the impulse to inhibit that. And little by little, if we do give ourselves into that exercise sincerely, then maybe we start to experience for ourselves a recognition that the thinking is not ultimate. There's a silence within which the noise of thinking is taking place. There's a space within which this movement 
of thinking is taking place. And that's really important. That we have the confidence, we have the daring to begin on this inner journey that questions the misidentification with the thinking mind. It's not wrong or bad, it's just a mistake. If all we do is think about Dhamma, what did the Buddha mean by this? What did the Buddha mean by that? What does he really mean by anatta if there's no self? What do, who am I? Those questions could be asked in a useful way whereby they direct attention inwards. However, if they're asked in a not so useful way, then our attention follows the movement of thinking. Who am I? Am I this? Am I that? Am I that? And the thinking goes out and that actually can drive us crazy. So learning how to use thinking skillfully, learning how to question our relationship to the thinking mind. If we want to ask these really important questions or any really important questions, we need to be willing to change our relationship with the thinking mind. If we're not willing to change our relationship with the thinking mind, to me that's that's like you're unwell and you go to the doctor and the doctor gives you a diagnosis and tells you you've got diabetes and gives you some medicine and tells you how to change your diet and, and then you go home and you, all you do is read, read about having diabetes. There's a lot you could read about diabetes. All the research that's been done on it, all the information there is about it, all the chemistry of diabetes, what causes it, what's happening, and the sugar metabolism and the consequences of it. However, regardless of how much we read about diabetes, obviously it's not going to really change anything. What needs to be done is something completely different, like change our diet. We need to stop just reading about having such an unfortunate medical diagnosis and do something like stop eating so much chocolate or food that actually worsens the condition of diabetes. So in the spiritual journey, we have these really relevant questions like who is suffering? Who lets go of suffering? Who understands the cause of suffering? That's a really important question. However, asking it merely by speculating and proliferating, that word in Pali, the the Buddha used papancha, proliferation. A thought comes up and then we, what about this? What about that? Is it this? Is it that? And the thought goes on and on, on, spinning stories and speculating. and that's why the Buddha said, I teach nipapancha, or non-proliferation. And so these five spiritual faculties need to be identified. Faith, energy. How to, it takes energy if we're going to inquire. Mindfulness, watchfulness. And then samadhi, or collectedness, that contributes a sense of stillness and, and discernment the faculty of understanding to really identify these and cultivate them setting ourselves up with the equipment so we can engage in the serious inquiry and the inquiry is how do we undo this tangle that we've got ourselves into 
life itself is not suffering. If life was suffering, well, then the Buddha could never have been free from suffering. Uh, all the awakened beings could never have fully awakened and been free from suffering. However, we have confidence that they did awaken and the Buddha was fully free from suffering. So it's not life's problem. The issue is how we relate to life. We relate to life with clinging. And so we, as we were chanting the Dhammachaka Sutta just now, and clinging is the cause and, and the result is a huge amount of suffering. And because we don't want to know about the suffering, we, we hide it away, we bury it away, we manipulate our awareness so the consequence of our heedlessness goes into unawareness, the basement of unawareness, all this unreceived, perfectly natural consequence of our ignorant behavior, all this denied dukkha, unreceived suffering ends up being hid away in the basement of unawareness. And if we want to really come to terms with it, if we inspired by the possibility of the example of those who've done their work and, and we really want to learn how we can ask our own personal really difficult questions like you know, why am I suffering? What is the cause of my suffering? How do I find freedom from suffering? We really want to do that. Then we need to be willing to get into touch with all this that we've stored away in the basement of unawareness. And what steadies us, what secures us, what supports us in that, it's these well-developed faculties. If these five faculties, these five spiritual faculties have not been sufficiently well established and we start to get in touch with some of this difficult material, some of this denied dukkha, then it can be really frightening and really threatening. And it's denied anger, which instead of running away from it and projecting it out and blaming other people, we decide to actually turn around and look at it. If we're not well established in the spiritual faculties, well, it can, it can make us feel very threatened indeed or, or fear if we've learnt at some stage of life that we're not allowed to feel afraid or fear is a sign of weakness or failure and so we manipulate our mind so as to deny that we're feeling afraid and it ends up being stored away unreceived and in the basement of unawareness and and then it's time to look at it it can come up as very intense fear even terrifying so it's wise it's skillful to uh, prepare ourselves with a conscious appreciation of these five spiritual faculties so that we have that support steadiness recently in conversation with somebody who's been practicing for a while they were sharing how things have been developing for them and the way they spoke about how practice was going, I can imagine how to some people it would sound really unattractive. They talked about what seemed to be like an almost constant flood of darkness, of dukkha, 
and having to receive it, having to handle it to the best of their ability. And, and a lot of it is not knowing and potentially threatening. However, listening to this fellow talk about it, I found it really inspiring. There was, there was no blaming going on. He wasn't blaming anybody for his suffering. And in fact, he commented how that this really feels like what I need to be doing. This feels like just what needs to be happening. And the confidence with which he spoke about that meeting himself in the darkness, in the dukkha, learning how to receive himself at just that place of limited being sounded like competence and, and the result of good practice. And If we haven't done the preparation, if we haven't cultivated a sufficient familiarity with the five spiritual faculties, then when we do find ourselves challenged with intense difficulties, you know, there's anger or fear or sadness, and another one we tend to not want to have to handle sadness, and so we store it away and unawareness and when we take the spiritual exercises, then we're going to have to handle all of it. We're going to have to receive all of it. We're going to have to look at all of it. So, an appreciation of the place of these spiritual faculties is tremendously important. The questions of like, who is it who suffers? If we engage that question with a compulsive thinking mind, there is no answer. However, if we engage that question, we recognize that question as, as, our, as the potential for faith. I mean, one way of, answer, of, of understanding that question is to see that it's actually born out of a potential for faith. It's because we have an intuition. It's not like a pointless question. We have some sort of sense that this is a question worth asking. And so we ask it out of faith, and then we cultivate faith, and hopefully, little by little, learn how to inquire beyond merely compulsive thinking. And this ties in also with this other question I wanted to address this evening, which says, to let go or not to pick up in the first place is the ultimate aim not to pick up anything and the practice towards this to gradually let go of what I'm clinging to. So yes, the ideal is to not pick up in the first place. However, we have these habits of clinging and to assume that we're going to be able to stop clinging just because we want to. It's like, again, like that image in the mirror, assuming they can change how it looks. It doesn't have the agency to do that. Will doesn't have the ability to teach us how to let go. We need qualities of heart, qualities of mind that are more powerful. I'm, I'm reminded here of 
that teaching I heard when I was living with my first teacher, I was in Tate many years ago in Thailand, and, and he was apparently asking his monks, and you're also using the image of the mirror, he said, if the eye uses a mirror to see its health, how does the heart see itself? Or how does awareness know itself? If the eye uses a mirror to see itself, how does awareness know itself? How does the heart see itself? And, and the answer he gave was wisdom. That's how wisdom functions. It's that, that reflective capacity of consciousness that takes us to understanding. And so once again, coming back to the five spiritual faculties, these these five abilities, I, these days I've been thinking about them as like, like a pyramid where you've got four faces to the pyramid. And, and if you've got one side is faith and opposite is discernment or wisdom. And one side is energy and the other side is, is collectedness. And then from the pinnacle of the pyramid, right down the centre, is sati or mindfulness, functioning as an axis. The axis of mindfulness helps determine that these other four qualities don't go out of balance. We all have faith, we all have confidence, we all have trust to some degree. However, if we don't have it to a good enough degree, then we're inhibited. If we have too much, then we're inhibited. And mindfulness helps keeps it balanced. On the other side of faith, as I was saying, is discernment or wisdom. And the knowing faculty, if we're too interested in knowing, if we're addicted to knowing, if we're addicted to the good feeling that comes from feeling sure about stuff, then we can always be asking questions when sometimes what's called for is just being willing to trust. To say, I don't know. I've got interest. I've got interest in being free from suffering. But I really don't know how to, I don't know how to handle this situation. That's not abdication, necessarily. Sometimes we need to use trust. Sometimes we need to use faith. Sometimes we need to use questioning. And mindfulness helps balance those out. Faith or confidence can be, you know, sometimes people think, oh, I don't have faith, I don't have... I don't like faith, I mean, that's for, that's for other religions, but I want to understand, and so they study, 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 and try and think things out. And when, in fact, sometimes we do need to just turn to a sense of trusting. And like if, if you've purchased a bunch of chairs from Ikea, kit set, dining chairs, and they come in, in a flat pack, and you've got eight flat packs of dining chairs, and, and you open it up, and there's all these bits and pieces there, and then there's this page of instructions. Now, if you're somebody who doesn't like trusting in anything, well, then you just throw the instructions away and say, well, I'm going to figure it out. And if you've ever tried that, well, you can make a right mess of trying to put together IKEA furniture. The more sensible approach is, well, 
you know, somebody else has designed this, somebody else has done this, and they've left some notes, and so I'll trust that these notes are worth paying attention to. And so we pick up the notes and we read them, we count all the bits and pieces, oh yeah, the notes say there's this many bits and pieces there, and, and then you start with this piece, and then you line it up with that piece, and oh right, that, and then you put that piece in there, oh right, it fits, oh that's good. If we didn't trust the notes, we could experiment for a very long time. We could make a right mess of it. We could be ringing up IKEA customer services and complaining about it. And they say, well, did you read the notes? They say, oh, no, I don't trust notes. I don't like notes. Say, well, that, that can lead to real difficulties. So there is a time when we need to trust in the teachings. We need to trust in the tradition. We need to trust in our teachers. That doesn't mean to say that we believe blindly Trust is not the same as believing. Blindly believing can be very naive, but trusting is more of a, a disposition, a willingness to not know, a willingness to learn. And as I was saying, opposite that on the pyramid, you've got discernment or wisdom, which is the understanding or knowing faculty. That's like if you have put together already one or two of your Ikea dining chairs and you more or less got a handle on it now and you do a third one and you say, oh, I know how to do this now. And you don't have to refer to the notes anymore. That's understanding. You know how to do it. You've learnt. Understanding, obviously, is what we're looking for on the spiritual journey. You want to understand the cause of suffering. But we start out by trusting that there is a cause and the Buddha's teachings are worth paying attention to and that following the compulsive thinking mind is not a solution. So we trust the teachings and we exercise ourselves so and to inhibit following thinking and listening to the sound of silence, for instance. Instead of listening just to the noise of our thinking, we listen to the sound of silence in which that, those thoughts are arising and ceasing. Or we imagine the space in which that movement is taking place. And it relativizes the thinking based on trust, based on faith, based on confidence. And then having done that exercise for a while, learned how to inhibit our compulsive reactions, maybe one day we're there quick enough, just as we're about to react to some impulse, and we see we've got a choice. You see, you absolutely see, all oh, right, if I react on this impulse right now, I will create a problem. There's a quiet, a quiet knowing. There's this impulse, something happens, maybe an irritating sound or somebody makes an irritating comment, but we're present enough, we've got enough restraint, enough mindfulness, enough readiness, and we're there for it. And there's maybe the recognition, all right, that's the cause of suffering. Yeah. If we move on the impulse and cling, we create a condition. We create a me, I am born, out of that. And then there's understanding. Where did that understanding come from? Well, it started with faith. And then also, of course, it needed the other qualities of energy, we don't have energy, if we don't have motivation. Energy can come from lots of different sources. It can come from faith. Energy can come from inspiration. It can come from interest. 
we need energy. So to understand this faculty of energy, the spiritual faculty of energy, and how we can generate it. Also, sometimes life just throws us a load of energy. Like the intensity that comes with a dilemma. We were caught in a dilemma where maybe maybe it's our job to say something difficult to somebody and really difficult. And we know it's our job, we know it needs to be said and that challenge takes us to the point where we have to acknowledge, I don't know how to do this. I have to do it and I don't know how to do it. And what happens there? Energy, intensity. Can we handle energy? What is our relationship to energy? Like studying these five spiritual faculties, we're studying our relationship to them, relationship to faith, to trust, to confidence. Our relationship to energy, when there is intensity, can we handle it? Or do we freak out? Do we judge it? Or have we prepared ourselves with enough readiness so that we can expand our sense of awareness and accommodate the intensity and use the intensity. Sometimes a dilemma, a really, really unattractive dilemma, a really frustrating, disappointing dilemma, is just like free energy. If we know how to meet it, we know how to receive it. Like at the moment, this pandemic that we're in the middle of can be very frustrating. But do we have to collapse around the frustrating circumstances we find ourselves in and turn it into a problem? Or can we meet the frustrating circumstances and use it? Like earlier this past week, there were several days there, 15th, 16th of September, we took the decision, okay, we're going to open up the vestibule to the Dhammahoy here and make it possible for people to come in. They set up a shrine in there and people can come in and, and leave food offerings and, and that'll really help. That'll be really helpful to our extended community, a lot of who are suffering and really missing not being able to come to the monastery. And So a lot of time and careful attention and phone calls and checking out, is this okay, is that okay, and what are we going to use? And went into arranging this new situation and, and so wrote up a couple of announcements and newsletter and published them at six o'clock on the, the morning of the 17th of September and then around midday the government announces a lockdown, well not complete lockdown but serious restrictions on all of Northumberland right here. I thought we had one of the lowest rates of infection and now suddenly <coughs> we have all these new regulations. Well, that's frustrating. But what do we do with that? How do we meet that? Are we ready? Have we prepared ourselves to not get our own way? Initially, when we don't get our own way, there's intensity, there's frustration. What do we do with that frustration? Do we collapse around it and and then complain about it and then project it out and oh the government is giving these endlessly complicated rules and it's all so unclear and, and this wretched virus, how did it happen anyway? And we can be whinging and whining and complaining about it or we can take a deep breath and open up, expand and accommodate 
that experience of intensity. And it's just energy. It's just our heart energy that because we're holding it the wrong way, we suffer. But that's not the problem with energy. It's not the problem with the virus. There's always been viruses around on planet Earth. Well, for many millions of years, there's been viruses around. <clears throat> there's always been politicians. And, and if you've got 60 million people on a little island like this, that's going to be really difficult to organise. So the circumstance we live in is always going to be somewhat frustrating. When we meet frustration, what do we do with it? Well, if we have some appreciation of the spiritual faculties, well, then maybe we'll be able to turn frustration into useful energy. Now, if we look at the other face of the pyramid, we've got energy on one side. The other side is collectedness or samadhi, which contributes, as I was saying earlier, stillness, tranquility calm, collectedness. So also inspecting our, contemplating our relationship to the cultivation of stillness. One of the difficult aspects of stillness is it's so delicious, so agreeable. And if you've been suffering for a while and you find some meditation technique which takes you to stillness, even if it is through willful striving, if it gets you there, it's so attractive that if we're not careful, we can become addicted to it and then take a position against anything like inquiring or investigating. And so having these two spiritual faculties opposite each other, energy and collectedness, is a useful reminder. And then, of course... In the middle there, there's the axis of mindfulness, of watchfulness, of alertness, of carefulness. That which sees whether things are in balance or out of balance. One of the images that the Buddha gave was like a gatekeeper standing at the gate in the city wall and a citadel and you have a, a gate where people come in and go out and the gatekeeper is, is watching who comes in and who goes out and you know, it's useful to read the, the Nagara Sutta that you can look up Ajahn Tanisro's translation and access to insight and see how he translates what the Buddha taught about the function of mindfulness how important it is, how central it is how it functions and the benefits of having it and the disadvantage of not having it. So once again, inspecting our relationship to the spiritual faculty of mindfulness. So if, once again, if these faculties are well developed, then the potential for not picking things up in the first place is enhanced. If we haven't developed these spiritual faculties, if we've just read about the Four Noble Truths and the Buddha's teachings and Anicca Dukkha Anatara and, and we're thinking about how to stop clinging, that's nowhere near enough. We need to develop these faculties so that we have a different, whole different set of abilities. And as we give ourselves into the inquiry and the false structure of deluded personality starts to be dismantled and and those habits of denying mm, dukkha mm, mean that we have to face what we've avoided for so long 
and it can feel difficult, it can feel very challenging, but hopefully we'll know that we've prepared ourselves. It's like you know, getting healthy and getting fit, being in a good state of health. And there may be disease around, but we can feel confident because we've done the preparation, we've, we're eating a good diet, we're doing exercise and keeping ourselves in good shape. There's a, one of the many lovely verses in the Dhammapada, well it's two verses actually, verse 58 and 59, which says that just as a sweet-smelling and beautiful lotus can grow out of a pile of discarded waste, the radiance of a true disciple of the Buddha outshines dark shadows cast by ignorance. And so this what sometimes looks like a pile of discarded waste and so a lot of our denied dukkha and unreceived suffering. It looks like just detritus that we've locked away and don't want to know about. But that, that sweet-smelling and beautiful lotus is not just growing on top of that pile of discarded waste, it's actually being nourished by it. So again, if we develop these spiritual faculties and, and learn to change the way we approach life's difficulties, as intense and as frustrating as, as life can be, that darkness, that density, that frustration, that difficulty, that dukkha, does not have to be an obstruction. Developing these five spiritual faculties means that Hopefully we're going to be able to grow. So once again, that Dhammapada verse or those two verses, at least the, my, my rendering of the verses, and um, people look up other translations of the verses, hopefully they'll recognise or appreciate that my rendering is um, giving an adequate representation of at least the essence of what the Buddha was talking about. And, uh, just as a sweet-smelling and beautiful lotus can grow from a pile of discarded waste. The radiance of a true disciple of the Buddha outshines dark shadows cast by ignorance. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. <laughs> Pandamayang Dhamma Gathaya Sadhu Gara 